Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. I want to pick up where we've left off the last number of weeks here. Uh, Last week we took a break because I wanted to talk about inner healing and uh, just the necessity of us getting healed and whole. If you don't resolve the issues of your past, the enemy will push on it and sabotage your future. And so let's just deal with it. Let's, you know, Jesus died for those things. And just because you were saved, you were born again, doesn't mean that you resolve the issues of your past. The fact is just like physical healing has to be appropriated by faith, so does emotional and spiritual healing have to be appropriated by faith. There's a cooperation that God requires of us. And so we were looking at that last week and then this week, what I want to do, uh, we've been looking at a theology of prayer for the last 17 years. And uh, no, seriously, we've been going a long time here. And uh, we went from a series to a series to a series and we're back at our original series on intercession. And uh, when when we first went into this series, uh, I told you that we're going to look at four Category, theological categories that are essential for us to understand if we're really to understand prayer. We, part of the problem, the, part of the prayerlessness in the church of Jesus Christ is the result of our own theology. Our theology is undermining our ministry. Our theology, our belief is undermining our behavior. Our theology, what we believe, is undermining how we're behaving uh, in the place of prayer. And so we've got to confront those things because there's some wrong theology out there that causes us to think that we can just check out. And one of those is that everything that happens is God's will. You've heard the phrase, God is in control. Well, he's not. He could if he wanted to, but he has set up a system where he is not controlling things. He has delegated the earth to us. God is in charge, but the principle of prayer is this, divine intervention only by human invitation. That's what prayer is. And so we went into these four facets, and we've only really covered the first two. And real quick, there's a little bit of review. The first facet of prayer is having a biblical cosmology. A biblical cosmology is the box in which prayer happens. It's, it's a study on the system that God created, the, the cosmos. This is the system God set up. And the system he set up according to Psalm chapter 8, and it's reiterated in Hebrews chapter 2, where the psalmist says, what is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man, you would visit him. You made him a little lower than the angels and put everything under his feet. So God put it under our feet. It's delegated to us. And so while we wring our hands and say, God, why don't you do something? He looks at us and says, why don't you do something? something. Pray, invite me, engage in this thing because God will not violate the system he set up. Now we got into a little bit of a, some, some kind of strange territory. A lot of people don't talk about this, but we got into the pattern of heaven, the government of God and in the heavenlies. Now scripture is very clear that God operates by a divine counsel. We see a number of pictures in throughout Scripture of this divine counsel. I know that's some of you. I went to Bible school. Uh, I was one of those intellectuals that squeezed a two-year degree into three and a half years. And uh, you, some of you will get that on the way home. It, uh, the, I've lost my way. They didn't talk about the divine counsel in Bible school. 
They, we, we never talked about this. And as I began to bump into this, I was very intrigued by it and a little bit apprehensive because I thought, man, I've never heard anybody talk about this. But I'm telling you, it is thoroughly scriptural. Uh, he, uh, Psalm 82, and I want to say it's 86. 82, it says, God takes his seat among the divine council. Uh, we see that scene when Ahab wanted to go against the enemy and he was bringing the pagan prophets and I believe it was Jehoshaphat said, hey, don't you got any godly prophets? And he said, yeah, we got one, May Micaiah, but he never prophesies what I want to hear. And Jehoshaphat, rightly so, rebukes him and says, don't say that. And so they call the godly prophet, the prophet of Jehovah, and he goes in, he has this vision of a divine council scene where God says, what are we going to do with they have? And different spirits step forward and give different suggestions, different options of what they're going to do. That's a picture of a divine council scene. We see it in Daniel where there's multiple thrones and God is ruling from those thrones. We see it in Job, a bunch of Job, Job uh, chapter one, where the sons of God come before the throne. And, and the Lord says to, in the Hebrew, it's thus Satan. He said, where have you been? He said, I've been wandering through the earth among the affairs of men. And so that's another divine counsel scene where God, God doesn't need a divine counsel. He doesn't need these spiritual beings to help him rule. But God is such an empowering leader. He is such, God is so geared towards family that he amasses, according to Job, the sons of God through which he rules the earth. He doesn't need them, but he does it through them. And we pray on earth as it is in heaven. So God operates at that realm through this, this spiritual family. And down here, he's established a spiritual family through which he operates and exerts his governmental rule. And we need to catch that. Because often we're sitting on our hands thinking, why doesn't God do something? And God is looking at us saying, you do something. Invite me. Engage me. Pray. Why would we have to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, if everything that happens was already God's will? It, it, matter of fact, that, that, whole fra that whole concept, if everything that happens is God's will, it makes the concept of sin nonsensical. Sin doesn't make sense because sin means to do something contrary to God's will. And if God is willing something contrary to his will, he needs counseling. This is, that, that's impossible. And so a scriptural cosmology is essential for us to engage in prayer. Because there's a lot of people, they look at the command to pray, but they can't keep the motivation to pray because they don't really think it's going to matter. They feel like, man, if I pray, it's not going to make a difference anywhere because God's going to do what God's going to do. And God said, no, I'm going to do it through you. You invite me. So that is why we pray. So a biblical cosmology is essential. And I know we've talked about this, but it's so important. We've got to keep hammering on this because God wants to ignite our hearts. We have a role to play here. We're not just, we're not victims of circumstances. We are kings and priests with him, ruling and reigning in the earth realm. We're, we're releasing the kingdom of heaven on the earth. We are overcomers. We are more than conquerors, but there is a battle. And so the cosmology then we also need a biblical theology proper. And what I mean by, all of this is theology, but theology proper, it's when we're studying the nature and character of God. Who is God? What is his nature? 
And so we need to understand who God really is. And, and there's a whole lot of things that entails that we could look at. But one of the essential elements of understanding God's nature when it comes to prayer is that it, it, Paul sums it up in the phrase in uh, Romans chapter 11. He says this. I want to say it's verse 26. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. The, the wording there in the Greek, consider it means to keep in the forefront of your mind. Keep it ever before you. Consider, therefore, both the kindness and sternness of God. The, the two facets of God's nature. Matter of fact, uh, it, I used to, when we used to carry Bibles, I could hold it up and let it flop and it looked more dramatic, but I'll hold up my computer. The Bible here, the Bible has two testaments to it, two covenants to it. The Bible is divided into two portions. There's an old covenant and a new covenant. There are two sides to God's nature. Just as your word is an expression of your character, if I can't trust your word, I can't trust your character, your word flows from your character, it's the same is true with God. God's word flows, it emanates from him so much that his son who emanates from the Father is the Word of God. He's the living Word and we have the living Word. And the living Word expresses itself into two covenants. There's the law and grace birthing within our hearts. Fear and love. Repentance and faith. And if we just look at one side of God's nature, what happens is, is we get this distorted view that brings us into error. There are two primary errors in the New Testament that are addressed again and again. And, and I'm, I'm painting with a real wide brush here this morning. But you can, there's, there's legalism, which says you have to earn your right standing with God through your own works. And then there's licentiousness that says it doesn't matter how you behave. Because you're saved, it doesn't matter. You can just live in sin because you're forgiven. And both of those are errors that are condemned in the New Testament. Your behavior matters. It doesn't purchase your salvation, but it flows from it. And your behavior matters. And so those two sides of God's character bring us into the middle of the road. The two ditches, if you want to put it that way, in the New Testament are legalism and licentiousness. And what keeps us in the middle is realizing the kindness and sternness of God. God is a good father. He's kind. But he's also very serious about what he says. The kindness of God the love of God expressed towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Births within our heart a corresponding love. We love him, why? Because he first loved us. How did he express that in the death of Jesus? But there's this other side to God's character that we need to understand. And that is the fear of the Lord which is a New Testament biblical concept. It's Old and New Testament. So the love of God and the fear of God. The love of God makes me run to him, but so does the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. And seeing God for who he is, you can put it this way. The kindness of God makes prayer possible. Perhaps he will rescue us because of his kindness. The sternness of God makes prayer essential. This is an emergency. Our nation 
has been an affront to God and we need to pray and cry out. And those twin uh, sentiments in the human soul will cause us to stay in the pocket. So you got your cosmology. Your, and if, if we had a whiteboard up here, we'd draw a big box cosmology. And at the top of the box is your theology. It's God. He's the one we pray to. Then we have at the bottom of the box our anthropology or a biblical idea, concept, picture of what man is. And we are the prayer. And we need to understand that God has given us equipment innate to our nature that we are to use in prayer. And it's more than just our mind and our mouth. God wants to engage your will and your emotions in prayer. These are two hidden weapons that God wants to leverage in the spiritual realm. So let's hang it on this verse. Many of you are familiar with this verse. James chapter 5. I want to say it's verse 17. It's really only a half a verse. It's I think 17b. Where James is talking about if any man's sick, let him call for the elders of the church. And the prayer, you know, prayer of faith will heal the sick. And then it says, for the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now that's the old King James. But that's the one that is so prominent in my mind because that's what I was raised with. King James. But now let's break that down. Think about this. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. What, what makes it effectual? Fervency and righteousness. Your righteous standing and your passionate engagement will release the power of God and make it very effective. We need to catch that because these are two hidden truths that we often don't think about. Your life of obedience will give you authority in prayer. Now we may think, well, wait a minute, pastor, that sounds a lot like works, like I'm earning the answer to my prayer. That's not what I'm saying. But if your lifestyle, the way you live, contradicts what you're asking for with your mouth, you will cancel with your behavior what you pray for with your mouth. That is why often the first phase of prayer, when God takes you on a fresh pray, pr uh, prayer journey or this, a, a fresh burden is laid upon your heart, uh, if, when you've been in a real crisis and all of a sudden you're crying out to God, God, you've got to rescue me. All of a sudden you're very sensitive to your behavior, aren't you? Why? Because you intuitively know this really matters in my prayer life. All of a sudden, there's a sensitivity. I don't want to kick the cat. I don't kick my cat. I don't have a cat. I wouldn't have a cat. But that's another story. So. But the, uh, you, know, you don't want to kick the cat. You don't want to snap at your wife or your kids. You're just very tender. You're being kind to everybody. People cut you off. You're bless you, bless you. you know? and, uh, they give you that, that you know, unique wave. People give you your, you know, bless you. Because you just want to keep your heart tender before the Lord. Because you, there's an intuitive knowing in your spirit. I am, I'm in a season of prayer and I want to gain the upper hand in this battle. I want the victory and I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit at all. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Say, well, you know, pastor, I know that, that you might be able to give that little illustration, but where's this in scripture? Okay, it's that passage. Let's look at another one. First Peter chapter four, where Peter is talking to husbands. And he says this, he says, husbands, dwell with your wife according to knowledge. 
In other words, get to know her. Spend the rest of your life trying to study that book, and it'll take you the whole time. I often tell people, I got a little book in my office, and uh, it's, it's a little book, and it's about this big, it's about this thick, and it's, the title of it is, it's so small, I keep it in a file, it's, the title is, What Men Know About Women, and you open it, and it's blank, you know? <laughs> Dwell with your wife according to knowledge. What he's saying is, live in sensitivity to the partner that you've taken, that you're, you're going to lay your life down for her, and live in sensitivity to her. Doesn't mean she's always right. That's where the men say amen. It's, it doesn't mean that she's always right, but it means that you as the groom, like Jesus, our groom, you go to the cross first. Jesus didn't say to us, hey, I want you to go to the cross until after. He, he, was, he was already on his way and he says, follow me. He's leading the way. We, we go to the cross. We lay our lives down for our wives. And gentlemen, if you will do that, you will find your wife is a whole lot w- more willing to follow. Right, now that's where you ladies really should have said amen. But he said, but, and then he says this. He says, dwell with your wives according to knowledge that your prayers may be heard. That is disturbing. What he's saying is the prevail... The, the, the ability for you to secure an answer to your prayer is contingent upon how you treat your wife. Well, that is heavy. I learned this very early on in my marriage. Totally serious. I, was, I, was, I got in an argument with my wife. I don't remember what it was about. I'm sure she was right. And, uh, amen. So we got in an argument and... Uh, I was irritated. So I said, I'm going down to pray. I went down to my office because we were living at Teen Challenge at the time. And I went, I went to pray. And this is what I distinctly heard. It wasn't audible, but it was real close. This is what the Lord told me. I don't want to hear it. Go apologize to your wife. I was shocked. But I'm telling you, if I've ever heard God and I've heard God, I heard God on that one. Another time we were in an argument. It's the only two times in our whole marriage. It... Uh, <laughs> And this, this was many years ago when we were much more immature. We've, the, I start making these boats up for, we'll get in an argument this afternoon. Pray for me. It, uh, but anyway, uh, we got in an argument. And I, I, remember I went to my spiritual father, one of my fathers, Quimby Collier. I said, Quimby, would you pray for me? I've been, been kind of cantankerous with Kathy and I'm irritated and just, you know, I just need to humble myself. He laid hands on me and thanks and I had no relief, man. I just felt like Ichabod. The spirit's gone. And so I went to, my, to another guy that I was under in the Lord, Jeff Clear. I said, hey, man, I'm, I've just been a jerk. And, you know, man, would you pray for me? And I, can, I humbled myself. And uh, he laid hands on me and nothing. It's still like crickets, man. I'm like, God, what's going on? So then I went and prayed again. And, I, and the Lord told me this. He said, humble yourself in the sphere of your difficulty. What he was saying is quit humbling yourself with everybody you're not mad at and go humble yourself with the one you're mad at. That's where you really need to exercise humility. So I took Kathy on a walk. Now for the life of me, this was, this was 25, 30, this had to have been like 30 years ago. And I don't remember what, but I remember her response. We're walking along at lunchtime and I said, I just want to take a walk with you. Kath, I've been a jerk. She said, yes, you have. <laughs> Ooh, man, I bit my lip. <laughs> kept walking and it lifted and the dove descended again hallelujah i'm telling you 
God cares how we treat our wives. And it's not just that passage is about marriage, but that, that is applicable to other, other relationships. One more verse, two more verses that, that cover this principle. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 or 5. It says, with loud cries and petitions, Jesus made his requests known unto God, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Catch that. Jesus' prayers were heard by the Father, not because he was the Son of God, not because of a whole lot of reasons we could find in Jesus that his prayers would be heard. It explicitly says the reason God heard the Son was because of his reverent submission. His life was yielded to the Father. Your surrender is intercessory leverage for heaven to move in planet Earth. So we, if we yield ourselves. One final verse is Zechariah. I don't remember the, the address, but in Zechariah it says this. It says, they called unto me and I would not hear because when I spoke, they would not listen. That is a heavy, heavy verse. What he's telling us is that prayer is a mutual exchange of requests. When you go in with your requests, God has some for you. And I'm telling you, seriously, this, this book on Rees Howell, this is, this is where I learned this principle. I began to read his life and I thought, what is that thing he's doing? And I began to ask the Lord about it and those scriptures were the conclusion I came to of what this guy lived so I want to encourage you, read this book. And what he did is when he would go on an intercessory journey in life, uh, again, he was the product of a tremendous outpouring of the Spirit, a tremendous revival, and God began to deal with him. He was a coal miner like most of the other Welshmen. The, the Welsh revival was so intense that during the Welsh revival, they literally had to retrain the mules in the coal mines. You know why? Because the mules didn't know how to respond to nice people. They were used to being cursed at, kicked, and yelled, yelled at. And they would talk like, okay, Bessie, let's pull it now. There. He'd just look at them like, what are you talking about? They, he was, the, the mules were used to getting angry. You know, someone getting angry at them. So they literally, I mean, this is, this is revival. When you got to retrain your mule, revival has arrived. I don't know how we're going to know because we don't own mules, but we'll, we'll know. Believe me, your wife will know, sir. Well, now we're meddling again. So, but what would, he would do is God would lead, lead, uh, lay someone on his heart. There would be somebody he'd have a burden for. One time the Lord gave him an assignment. The most, the, the biggest drunk in his city was this woman. She was very immoral, drunken lady that just lived a immoral lifestyle. And the Lord said, I want you to stand in the gap for her. I want to save her. And you are the one I'm going to pray through. But here's the requirement. You're not to say a word to her. You don't witness to her. You don't preach to her. You stand back and fast and pray and watch me do the work. And so what he would do is he would begin to live in a place of uh, identification with that woman. And he, he began to pray and he would go before the Lord and he would say, the Lord would begin to ask things of him. Like one time the Lord told him, I don't want you to wear a hat anymore. Now we're like big deal. But in that culture, it was a big deal. If a man went outdoors, he always had a hat on, you know, one of those fedoras or something, you know, he, he would, they wouldn't wear a hat. 
And the Lord said, I don't want you to wear a hat. His mother would be so embarrassed. He was still living at his, his mom and dad's house. And she would be so embarrassed. Please, Reese, don't leave the house. This is, what are the neighbors going to think? You're reflecting on a whole, our family. She would just be so embarrassed. And he said he would go outside the house and turn beet red. He's like a little glowworm walking down the street. He was so embarrassed just walking and his face would be beat red. And then he said, finally he got to the place where it didn't matter. You see, God was after something in him. He was, see, Rees Howell's inner life was the beachhead of God's invasion in that woman's life. God was gonna secure something in him so that he could secure something in her. And his yieldedness was leveraged to begin to deal with this woman. His life was the first fruits. The first fruit of change was him. And as he changed, he said, I would gain a platform of authority, of intercession, of dominion. He said, once I got it, I knew it's just a matter of time. I was so intrigued because this man saw God do things. And I thought, God, I want to be used like that. I want to see you move in people's lives. One time he was praying for the child prostitutes in India. And so one of the things the Lord laid on his heart is live in the sparse conditions that they live in. So he would eat one bowl of rice a day and he would sleep on a concrete floor on a little mat because that's the conditions. And he was trying to identify with them just as Jesus came and identified with us so that he would know what it feels like and he would cry from that place. And he'd see tremendous breakthrough. And so our surrender, our yieldedness, we need to realize as we're coming before heaven and crying out for our situations, as we yield him, God will begin to deal with us. And that has everything to do with that situation because God is taking more of you. It's in a strange way, you can put it this way. God is cleaning out the conduit so he has a greater flow through you. The less he has of you, the less he can flow through you. But as you clean out the vessel, there's a greater flow for God to begin to use. We are partnering with heaven in this thing. We are not, we are not merely recipients of what Jesus did. In our relationship with Jesus, we are recipients. He died, we receive, hallelujah. It's a free gift. But make no mistake about it. In your relationship with Holy Spirit, you are a participant. Yes. And he, you are partnering with him. And he wants to use you and move through you. He needs your mouth, your tears, your hands. And if we only have one side of this theology, we're sitting around thinking we just receive from the Holy Spirit and wonder why God doesn't use us. When God is looking for us to engage our life and lay it down and say, God, use me. I want to be your hands and feet. That is the ministry of the Spirit through you. And so this is a crucial thing that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. He's not merely talking about legal righteousness that you receive from Jesus as a gift. When I got saved, I was a homeless alcoholic. I got radically saved in a borrowed bedroom. Jesus filled the room. I, and I didn't plan on getting saved that morning. I just, or that night, I just was going to open up communications with him again. And I said his name. That's all I got out. And his presence filled that room. And it was like the smell of 
barbecue to a starving man that didn't realize how hungry he was. All of a sudden, that presence, that feeling, that the, the, the presence of a long lost friend entered into that room and I realized, oh, I've missed him so much. It was like water to a dying man. And I began to weep and just say, oh, Jesus, Jesus. And I didn't intend to. I just surrendered right there. I said, Lord, I'm done. I'm done running. I'm, I'm blubbering. I'm crying. I'm laughing. I started speaking in tongues. I mean, I had church. I was rolling around that, that little bed. I mean, I was, and God invaded my life. And my life has hinged on that night in 1983 ever since. I received it as a free gift. Now, there was a process of maturity. The lady who let me sleep in her son's bed, her and her husband, she was saved. He wasn't. She was witnessing to me. She'd buy me Marlboro Reds and I'd chain smoke while she read the Bible to me. And I thought, I got her. I got a free place to stay and free cigarettes. <laughs> Never knowing that that word was getting in me and she had me. God gripped my heart and I, was, I began to try to walk with the Lord. She gave me money for a Bible. You know what I did with that money? I went out and bought a keg with it. I was still a messed up young man. The only difference between that keg and the ones I bought before was this one I couldn't enjoy. I sat there and wept and spoke in tongues the whole time. And it was a bunch of bikers. They descended because, hey, that's, this is awesome. This kid has a, has a keg. And I'm sitting at a picnic table with them crying and speaking in tongues. And they must have thought, you are the weirdest kid. But you get free beer, so we'll hang out. God was gripping me. You see, I had legal righteousness but I didn't have living righteousness. I had, I had the gift of righteousness, but my legal condition and my, my legal position and my living condition were at odds with each other. But only as I matured and God began to establish righteousness into me as character and those things began to fall off and I wasn't tempted anymore because he began to heal my heart. Then I could enter into a place of authority and ministry and begin to move things and I wasn't susceptible to the accusations of the enemy. So your righteousness, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man is more than you just being saved. It's you beginning to obey. I would not, when they pray, I will not listen. Why? Because when I spoke, they would not listen. In other words, you listen to me and I'll listen to you. There's a, there's a relationship here. There's a covenantal partnership here in prayer. And we need to understand. It's not earning that, but it's cooperating with it. And so we need to realize that. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. But there has to be also this principle of fervency. God wants to grip our hearts. There's a fervency that needs to take place. I am so grateful for those of you that have been coming out in the mornings. I'm telling you, there's something's been ignited in me that I haven't had in quite some time. I've asked the Lord for it for 15 years. 15 years ago, something gripped my life. It was the grace of God. I was at a conference in... in uh, at IHOP in Kansas City, and I answered an altar call, and God did something in my life that night. And it changed my life and launched me into a season of seeking God that I, I couldn't get away from. It was God was, had done something in me. And I've been asking the Lord for that again, and something has been ignited. 
And anytime that happens in me, it's not just me. I've seen others being pulled into that. Not because there's, there's a convergence of God creating a groundswell of hunger in us, but I want in. I don't want to miss out. I don't want to be on the outside looking in. I want in on this thing. And in prayer in the mornings, we, we'll get to, I try to get here about a half hour early and just begin to pray so we can give some direction to what God's doing. And it's that old thing that, you see, you have a spirit with inside of you that if you are born again has been become one with the spirit of God. So much so in the New Testament, sometimes it's hard to discern whether a verse is talking about the Holy Spirit or the, the born again human spirit. You look in different translations, they, they vary. Some will have a small S and some will have a large S because some scholars say, no, that's talking about the Holy Spirit. And others say, no, that's the, human, the born again human spirit. And you know what? It doesn't matter. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, he who has been uh, received the Spirit has become one with him in spirit. The Spirit of God sets up residence in your human spirit. But I have found that my human spirit can be asleep. It can lie dormant. I'm born again. Heaven is my destination. But I'm not living on fire because it's dormant. I've got all these concerns around me that just choke it out. And being in prayer every day like this corporately and just walking these aisles for an hour and a half, two hours a morning. It just, it's like I engage my spirit See, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says, when you pray in tongues, your spirit prays, but your mind may remain unfruitful. Amen. See, when you're praying in your prayer language, in tongues, it's not, that's not technically, scripturally speaking, praying in the spirit. It's praying with your spirit. Now, hopefully you're praying in the spirit, even when you're praying in your native tongue. We're to eat in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. But when we pray in tongues, we're engaging that spiritual man. We're waking up. We're taking that man and shaking him awake and pushing him to the forefront. We're putting him in charge. And it's like we're stirring up that inner man so that we can engage him. We're to, we're to live alive in God, full of the Spirit. Your spirit man is to be the, the leading component of your makeup, if, for lack of a better way to say it. We talked about it a couple weeks ago that you are a Trinitarian being. You are a body, soul, and spirit. You're made in the image of the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are body, soul, and spirit. Your body is this container that can interact with the physical realm. Your spirit is that component of your nature that communes with God. It's where God resides in your nature. And your soul is in one sense the liaison between the two, your mind, will, and emotions. And your mind, will, and emotions will either respond to your flesh or to your spirit. And so we need to have our spirit man alive. When, we, when Adam and Eve sinned, their spirit died. And they be, it says just a few chapters later, all men became as flesh. They were, they were fleshly, following their physical inclinations. They were led into sin. Were to be, when I first got saved, my spirit man got saved that night. And then I went out and bought a keg. And all my spirit man could say is, oh, no, no, don't do it, don't do it. It was too small to exercise to me. No, no, I'd be drinking, no, don't do it. 
And then as I began to grow in the Lord, my spirit man, I'd say, hey, dude, there was a tug of war. Sometimes, and sometimes one would win and sometimes the other. And now I like to think my spirit man is what bad mamma jamma. <laughs> Dragging my little, my little flesh. No, no, no. Yes. You know, and making it do what it's called to do. We're to become strong in spirit. Feed your spirit, man. Grow up in the spirit. Follow after the spirit. Romans chapter 8 says, they who are led by the spirit of God, you cannot be led by the spirit of God without your spirit man being led. Your spirit man is the one who engages the Holy Spirit. They who follow after the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Before that, if you're born again, you are what the, the Greek calls a technon. You're a born one, or we translate it child. You're a child of God. That's awesome. But a son of God is different. You see, in the Roman Grecian culture, sons had the full rights of their inheritance. A child had the nature of the father. It had had the potential rights eventually. But over that child would be placed a male nanny called a pedagogue. And he would make him, that child, do through external pressure what he should eventually do by internal discipline. And so that's a child. But as they grew up, then that child would go through what was called a ceremony of adoption or a ceremony of sonship. It's the same word. Some translations call it sonship, some call it adoption. And in Roman Grecian culture, it wasn't taking a, a child born to another father, genetically unrelated, and giving him the rights of that family. It was taking one that was bo a born one and giving them the full rights of sonship. Sonship was a, a very... It was, it was a big deal because you were entering into adulthood and now you'd be given the ring with the, the seal of the family. You could do business. You could, you could exercise the family fortune in the marketplace. You could, the, before that day, the servants in the house were over you. After that day, you were over them because you were now in sonship. They who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. You want to be able to do some kingdom business, then come under the discipline of the Holy Spirit, who is our pedagogue. He is that, that, that developer of our character, and he's wanting to, he will provide external pressure to get you to do what you should eventually do by internal discipline. Yield to him, don't fight him, and allow him to establish that in your life so you can enter into sonship and begin to exercise kingdom authority. It's the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. And so the Spirit of God comes in us and he begins to bring us into that discipline. And one of the ways we can quicken that process is begin to get in that place and commune with God and get, wake up your, your spirit man in the morning. Get him engaged or her and let them come to the forefront. Live from your spirit. Don't live from your flesh. Awaken and live from that place. Now, we don't have time this morning because 
I got 57 seconds before noon. So we don't have time to get into the fervency element. God willing, we'll get into it next week. But this fervency th thing, the engagement of your heart in prayer. You want to see things move? I'm not talking about manufacturing emotional froth. I'm talking about engaging heaven with a fire where God has engaged your heart and you see the validity, you see the vision of this thing where your heart is gripped and we can enter into travail and God can move things in the spirit. I have great hope for the United States of America because I know that God is engaging people's hearts all over this land. My, I'm not getting my news from CNN or Fox or any other. I'm getting my news from that book and what the Spirit of God is telling me. And I'm telling you, I have great hope for this nation. But I'm also telling you, the battle has not yet been won. It has not yet been won. We are in the process. We need to cry out for this nation that it would be the home of the free and the home of the brave with liberty and justice for all. Amen. Let's stand. Let's stand. Let's just lift our hands to the Lord real quick here. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you. Just begin to pray. Lord, we thank you. Father, I ask God that you would engage our hearts. Lord, that you would ignite our hearts. Lord, take what we've been talking about and engage us, Lord. Ignite the fire of God within our hearts, Lord. Father, I ask that you would give us understanding, vision of the possibilities to rule and reign with you now. Lord, to begin to release your purposes on the earth. Father, we ask God in these prayer meetings, Lord, that they would continue to grow, they would deepen. And Lord, we ask that you would release the angelic army. Lord, the armies of God through our prayers and declarations. And Father, we stand in the gap as a governmental house of prayer. Lord, we cry out for the United States of America. Lord, preserve this nation for your name's sake, Lord. For your name's sake. Lord, that your purpose is your dream for the United States of America would be realized. Lord, we do not pray, we don't pray this out of some misguided nationalism, we pray it out of jealousy for your purposes for this nation. Lord, you've delegated this nation to us. And so, Lord, we ask, visit it again. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.